Well, I can't wait to meet our host. I hear this is only one of his beat parties. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Stay positive, the love will come back to me. Good evening, this is Harry Day with Two Truths to Lie. I've been looking forward to doing this episode for a long time. I just never got around to it. But I guess the reason I find it so special, and it is actually Southern culture, which is supposedly the uh, backbone of this show. Uh, it's not always Southern or culture, but today it is. Tonight it is. What am I? Oh, it's one thirty-six already. Gosh, well, at least it's Friday night, right? Um, the Chitlin Circuit was a uh, collection, a set of venues throughout the South, really the East and part of the Midwest, also that. Uh, was a place for black musicians and comedians and other entertainers to tour during the time span of uh, segregation in the United States, which basically was after the Civil War all the way up into the, the civil rights movement in the 60s, culminating in the 70s when all the old school, old school white racists were getting feeble or dying out. And there's still some, but the numbers just aren't there anymore. Thank God. Because a lot of these entertainers who are on the Chitlin circuit um, really helped remold American culture as a... Uh, we came into our modern time. Now, they were modern then, like in the 1930s, when it somewhat started through the 1960s and into the 70s. And still there were juke joints around. But by the 70s, blacks were able to play venues that were only white at one time. It's really hard. I'm glad I, w I was born, you know, I was born during the end of the civil rights era in 1969 here in Mississippi. So I've, I didn't see the sit-ins at the lunch counters in Jackson, the capital here in Mississippi, where whites totally berated and threw food on and squirted mustard and ketchup on and poured drinks on and shakes on the black people who would sit in at the white counter. And and that was the non-violent stuff because there were murders. But I don't want to get into the violent, dark side of this part of American history that has finally, over the last four decades, I don't know, gotten so much better with rights and abilities and um, the chances, the opportunities that blacks now get. Now, I live in Mississippi. I haven't always lived here. I am from here. I've always hung around black people when I was a kid at the stadium where the football games were. I was a runner for Barney Poole, who was a football star in his, in his past. He ran the stadium. He was kind of a figurehead, really. But I was I was his gopher for the office, and I would run tickets and passes before the game started to gates and sometimes up to the press box. So I, I ran up and down the stairs and all around the stadium as a little kid before I was old enough to drive. And I had all the passes to go wherever I needed to and wanted to go, which was really, really cool. I saw a lot of interesting things. We're not going to get into that either. We need to get into the Chitlin circuit. But I hung out with during the game and sometimes after, I hung out with the black crew. Eddie used to come work with my dad 
in our yard doing flower beds or garden work or whatever, but he headed up the crew. He even had his own club out on Highway 18 outside of Jackson. I have not seen him probably in a 17 years. I really doubt he's alive, but he was living to an old age. But uh, his whole crew was cool to me. Worked on golf courses with black people. Uh, it's just, for me, it was just working with people who who were interesting and funny. And they, you know, they came from their own culture. And it was just, you know, I absorbed a lot of it. And I'm glad that I did. Because it was all through my my. Age. I live in a town that's 80% black. I live in a state that's probably 50% black. It has the highest black population per capita in the country, I believe. Not the highest population of black people, I don't think. That might be Georgia. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, the Chitlin Circuit was during segregation. The, blacks, the black entertainers couldn't play in um, all the white clubs. So, I don't have my readers, so this might be difficult. Um, the Chitlin Circuit was solely by, for, and about black people. Now, there was a, there's been a lot of cultural debate on when the Chitlin Circuit peaked, and many, I guess, people that study this say it was the 1930s. Others say it was after World War II. And then some say it was during the time of the blues. Well, the whole period was blues, really. But but it, there was, you know, rock and roll was probably born on the Chitlin Circuit by Little Richard... And uh, James Brown. But Elvis Presley got the nod. He got the, he got the focus. Because it was still the 50s and it was still segregated. And he was doing black songs. But he was white. That and he was very good looking and, and really moved around on stage. And had so much charisma that he just stole the world's heart. And he would have given it back if they asked for it because he was that, he was just, you know, super, super person. My dad met him um, when he did shows in Jackson at the Coliseum. I always thought that was interesting. There's a picture of them together. I can't find it. I wish. But I can't. Um, so the Chitlin Circuit, it was named after... Chitlins, or chitterlings, as they're called. It was a soul food dish of based in boiled pig intestines. Um, it's said that it was a play on the term the Borscht Belt, which was a Jewish, Jewish circuit up in the uh, upper New York State during the 40s through the 60s. But uh, Chitlins were a really big part of the culinary history of African Americans. It it boils down to chitlins. Now, the boiled chitlins, I've had them, and they were clean intestines that were flushed and cleaned and boiled, and it just kind of tasted a little like shit. It really did. Now... If you take the boiled intestine after you just boil it so it's tender and then fry it, it's way better. Way better. Just straight boiled, unless you boil it in crab boil, you know, heavy spice. Ugh. Hard to eat. Really is. But during segregation and going way back to the slave time, the uh, good parts of the pig, the ham... The bacon were for the whites. And so the blacks got the feet and the uh, ears. 
and the stomach, which is called tripe, and the intestines. And they learned how to cook all these things to make it edible. That and greens, and if they were lucky, cornbread. Um, it was just a part of their lifestyle. By uh, Not by choice, of course. But that was, you know, that's just our shitty history. But it's in the past. Thank goodness. I'll say that every time. The, now, this chitlin food symbolizes acquiring a taste out of necessity and eventually coming to like it. It may be the same way for the music, but I think the music really was easily absorbed by the public. And and there were white people, younger younger people, who would stay outside of these clubs. And some were brave enough to go in, although they'd get a lot of looks. But probably in segregation, there were no one messed with the whites because then repercussions would come around because it was just a sign of that shitty time. Um, the term Chitlin Circuit apparently did not appear in print until 1972 in an interview with Ike and Tina Turner. I've seen Ike Turner. I never saw Tina Turner. Ike's dead. I think Tina's dead now, too. I'm not sure, though. Um, in this century, the term was applied to venues, especially in the South, where African-American blues singers such as Bobby Rush... Denise LaSalle and O.B. Buchanan regularly appear. Now, I've seen Bobby Rush, and that is, I've seen him twice at least. So entertaining. He's probably 89 years old, still touring, getting on stage, getting big-bootied women up there. And, you know, he, he sings some, you know, suggestive, dirty kind of things. But that's what you got in some of these clubs in the Chitlin Circuit, especially the juke joints which were small local places, not well-known uh, venues that were considered Chitlin Circuit. Um, I'm, I'm reading some of this off of Wikipedia. The rest is off my personal experience and knowledge. Uh, for some reason, they go into something about Tyler Perry trying to modernize the Chitlin Circuit in his shows and uh, I find them very entertaining. You know, Medea, all the Medea movies, you know, they're, they're, they're not expensive movies, but they're so funny. You know, they're hilarious. They're great watches. Some of the subject matter is different than others. Sometimes they don't have all the older people that he plays all the different characters. They have younger people, and it gets a little soap opery or, or uh, what are those channels that, that men hate? Uh... Gosh, you know those channels. It's like it's the same thing. Man and woman uh, find each other, get together. Someone does something wrong, don't like each other. Then there's drama, and then maybe they get it back together again, or they don't. LMN is one of the channels. I just thought of it. Anyway. Apparently, the Chitlin Circuit started... In Indianapolis, Indiana, of all places. And and Indiana is a country, I mean, it's got some cities, but it, it's it's a country state. It really is. It's, it's got plenty of rural uh, phantasm. You know, it's, 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 I'm sure it's gorgeous. I've seen it from an airplane, so I really can't say. Uh, there were two entrepreneurs, they were black, in Indianapolis, named C-S-E-A, and Denver D. Ferguson. They had a business called the Theater Owners Booking Association, and this was 1930. Um, they had a band leader and columnist named Walter Barnes who had all the contacts to bring in black entertainers to Indianapolis in the 1930s. Well, they had their license, it became successful, so they had their license revoked by white people in 1940. So the Ferguson brothers opened their own booking agency, and uh, I guess they kept it on the lowdown because it grew very rapidly, 
and became the most powerful black-owned talent agency in the United States. This is in the early 40s. These two men helped orchestras, bands, and vaudeville shows find gigs. Some of these early performers, I've not heard I've not heard of any of these people, by the way. These early performers on on these uh, venues around Central and Eastern United States, these early performers were like Jay McShann, King Colax, Tiny Bradshaw, Roosevelt Sykes, Claude Trenier, the Bama State Collegians, the Carolina Cotton Pickers, Snook and Russell, that sounds like a good one, Milton Larkin, Clarence Love, Gene Pope, and the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. I bet they were popular. So tours were organized all over the South and parts of Central, you know, United States. There was a man, a musician named Sax Carey, who was quoted as saying about Denver Ferguson, he was the man who invented the Chitlin Circuit. Now, these are venues all over in the black parts of town, in these cities that had these black clubs that somehow the Ferguson men got all these musical acts to go tour around. I guess they did it all by telephone. Unless they did it by writing letters, which I, you know, I don't know. Maybe both. Now, there were so many of these. I thought, I didn't think there were this many, but it makes sense that there are this many. And these don't, these aren't all of them, by the way. These are the more well-known ones. And, and a lot of them aren't open anymore. And some of them are famous. Um, in Maryland, there was Cars Beach. Atlanta, Georgia had the... Royal Peacock, Austin, Texas, the Victory Grill, Baltimore, Maryland, the Royal Theater, Bay St. Louis, that's in Mississippi, had the 100 Men Hall. And it doesn't say in here the Subway Lounge, which was here in Jackson, in the basement of a hotel. I went there a lot of times, saw a lot of interesting things go down, and saw some really great blues music. And people would just get up. There was this woman named Patrice who could sing. She was a short, cannonball-shaped black woman who supposedly sang in Carnegie Hall at one time in her career. But she was in Jackson, um, had a kind of a checkered past, and man, that woman could sing. She probably toured some of these places, but she was younger than a lot of these early uh, black musicians and entertainers. Birmingham, Alabama had the Carver Theater. Bowling Green, Kentucky had the Quan Set. Chicago, Illinois had Robert Show Lounge, Club Delisa, and the Regal Theater. Detroit, Michigan had the Fox Theater and Henry's Palace. Dothan, Alabama had Club Capri. Eatonville, Florida had Club Eton. Uh, Gathersburg, Maryland had the Dew Drop Inn and the Emory Grove. Um, Harlem, New York had the Cotton Club, Small's Paradise, and the Apollo Theater, two of those I'm sure you've heard of. Hobson City, Alabama, I don't even know where that is, had the Men's Club and Holloway's Night Club. Hopkinsville, Kentucky had the Skylark and the Chesterfield. Indianapolis, Indiana had the Madam J. Walker Theater. Jacksonville, Florida had the Ritz Theater. Lebanon, Kentucky had the Club Cherry. Lexington, Kentucky had the Lyric Theater. Little Rock, Arkansas had the Dreamland Ballroom. Memphis, Tennessee had the Hippodrome, Club Handy, and Club Paradise. Norfolk, Virginia had the Attics Theater, known as the Apollo of the South. Okay, this is, this is a sidebar. This is like, let's jump out of the ship of this show and get in a little dinghy and talk a little side thing. For, I'm, I'm from Mississippi. Virginia is just south of Washington, D.C., Sure, Virginia fought in the Civil War. But now, today, you're just not the South. I bet you don't have salt food. I know you don't have uh, Cajun and Creole food. You probably have uh, coastal food, crab cakes, you know, Chesapeake Bay food, flounder or whatever. But come on, 
please. North Carolina is not even south in our book. Kentucky is not south in our book down here in Mississippi. But we're down here in the food pocket of the world, so we just have the good stuff. We also have the heat in the summer, but we can deal. Um, where am I? Mobile, Alabama had the Harlem Duke Social Club. Pensacola, Florida had Abe's 506 Club. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania had the Uptown Theater. Phoenix, Arizona had the Cauldron Ballroom. Wow, I did not know. The Chitlin Circuit went all the way to Arizona. Think about the drive across Texas alone, but then New Mexico, and then into Arizona, into Phoenix. And their cars were probably overheating during the day because it's hot as hell in the summer. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania had the new Granada. Richmond, Virginia had the Hippodrome Theater. Now, there must have been more than one of those then because I just read that. Memphis, Tennessee had one. Uh, San Antonio, Texas had Eastwood Country Club. Hmm, probably a golf course. San Antonio, Texas had the Keyhole Club. Smithfield, Texas had the West End Park. St. Petersburg, Florida had the Manhattan Casino. Taylor, Texas had the Chicken Shack, Hidalgo Park, and One Acre Club. That just sounds cool. Tampa, Florida had the Blue Note. Tallahassee, Florida had the Red Bird Cafe. Tulsa, Oklahoma had the Big Ten Ballroom. I wonder if Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, a all-white swing texas swing band from the 30s and earlier and much later or if they played because they they put a little black music into their uh texas swing they put some blues in there you need to listen to bob wills and texas playboys although you kind of it precurses country music but it's a big band like they were as popular a big band as as count basie or steve miller in Waco, Texas, had Walker's Auditorium. In Washington, D.C., had the Howard Theater. Now, some of these places are still going. The subway here in Jackson is not going. They tore it down. They they did a documentary special on it that you can watch on most medias if you look for it. And it's pretty good. I don't even think they show. It's all good interviews. But when they did it, it was closed down, and now it's torn down. And they have a... Mississippi Blues Trail Marker there, just like the one in Bay St. Louis, stating the name of the blues venue and the time frame and a little bit about blues music. But there ain't nothing there. It's a cleared, uh, they cleared that whole neighborhood, which was an old black neighborhood. Before that, probably a white neighborhood in, in early, early Jackson history. Um, they cleared it to make a four-lane road that it was like a designer road that curved from downtown Jackson out to Jackson State University and it had two roundabouts in it. And I've only driven through there twice and both times I noticed that people do not yield in the roundabouts. They just go. And so you got to be careful in those um, shooting galleries. Jack Jackson's gone down so much, it's sad, because it was a, such a beautiful little city. You'd think they could get a hold of the of the crime in a city that was so small. And it's a capital city with resource, and it's so small, and you can't control the violent crime. That means they're in on it. That's all it means. Or they're blinded by, you know, the sadly the black people first or I get mine before just the community in general. And that's in the government, city government. I'm not saying everyone's like that. So they have a list of people who started out on the Chitlin circuit. And it starts in the 30s, but most of these people you will know by name that probably started in the 50s if you don't, or later. If you don't recognize the names, it was probably earlier in the 50s. But all these people played in the Chitlin circuit, which means here in Mississippi, they played at the subway. They uh, probably played a, a gig in Memphis and then played at the subway in Jackson and then went down and played in Bay St. Louis, over to Mobile, up through Alabama. It depends on which direction they're going. They, they loaded up and hit the, hit the circuit, got paid, had fun, probably made babies and took off. 
And, you know, they say B.B. King had 30 children. Who knows from how many women? I don't know. But he, he took care of them all because he was so successful. And he was beloved by everybody. I saw him in the 70s when I was a child, but it was in a big venue at the Coliseum where whites and blacks went to see him. I don't recall seeing a lot of blacks. I know I didn't see any when I saw Willie Nelson in the same time frame or Elvis. I saw those three in the 70s. I don't remember anyone else as far as concerts. My dad did security at it. So we had a box seat, which was just front row, but not on the floor. So side front. You know, the fold-down seats. We always went to the rodeo. That's what I always remember the place for is the rodeo. Anyway, all of these people I'm going to name, because this is a list kind of episode. This is this is dropping names. And I'm not dropping these names like I knew them. But I guess I'll say a little something about the ones I recognize or like. But these people work their asses off, risk their lives, you know. Had, during segregation, you get pulled over by the police. It was yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir, no, sir. I'll do whatever you say. And, uh, I mean, you should do that now. But they were targeted, pulled over, and messed with. But anyway, the names of people that ran the Chitlin Circuit throughout the South, and maybe a little further out, Count Basie, he had a big band, orchestra, he's awesome. Pegleg Bates, Tiny Bradshaw, James Brown, and the Famous Flames. They started down in Natchez, Mississippi, as I recall. There's a movie that came out recently about James Brown, and it's a good movie. Cab Calloway, he was Chicago. Uh, big band singer, uh, he was in the business forever. He was in the Blues Brothers. Ray Charles, we've all heard of Ray Charles. Louis Jordan. Now, I, I, I think I did an episode about Louis Jordan a couple of years ago. I'm pretty sure. And I can't remember why, but there must have been a good reason. Uh, he, he created something or was the, the leading edge on something in entertainment. I can't remember what it was. Uh, Lucky Melinder. Dorothy Dandridge. Sammy Davis Jr., who got in the Rat Pack with uh, Dean Martin? Who's way better singer than Sinatra? I, I'm a I'm a I'm a Dean Martin fan. Uh, you know, Sinatra's good. He's good, but I think he got big because he was in the pocket of the of the mafia. Whereas, you know, Dean Martin just drank a lot of whiskey or bourbon or what scotch or whatever. And smiled and was hilarious and was the most beautiful singer of that era. Fats Domino, well-known. Duke Ellington, big band. Ella Fitzgerald, big voice. Ella Fitzgerald is like the, the queen of uh, blues and maybe even a little jazz. Little Milton, um, blues man. Red Fox, the comedian. His stand-up records are so hilarious. He was an early comedian who pressed records where he cussed and told dirty jokes. He was the man in Sanford and Son. Aretha Franklin, everybody's heard of Aretha Franklin. Billie Holiday, the most beautiful voice. You know, was she jazz? Was she blues? She was kind of a little of both. Beautiful voice. It was sad that she was an addict and it killed her. Uh, John Lee Hooker, who actually ended up living in England in London. Because he just, he was, he didn't think the United States would ever not be racist, basically. Roy Hamilton, Lena Horne, beautiful singer. Sam Cooke, beautiful singer. Jackie Wilson, Teddy Wilson, Etta James, now she could belt it. Albert King, great bluesman. B.B. King, Mississippi bluesman. Uh, John Lee Hooker was also Mississippi. I think Little Milton was Mississippi. I'm going up, making sure I know which ones were Mississippi. James Brown. Albert King, Freddie King, I don't know. Muddy Waters, Blues Man Huge, Mississippi. Helen Wolf, Blues Man Huge, Mississippi. Bobby Blue Band, I think Mississippi. Tyrone Davis, Willie Hightower, Joe Tex, Moms Mabley. She was um, a true original. She was older generation. 
Jay McShann, Rudy Ray Moore, Roosevelt Sykes, The Dramatics, Soul Children, Wilson Pickett, have you heard that name? He had some big hits. Richard Pryor, have you heard that name? Uh, he was a comedian, came along after uh, Red Fox. Otis Redding, probably my favorite voice ever. I've told a story at least on two episodes where when they recorded Sitting on the Dock of the Bay during a tour, they stopped in Detroit and recorded Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. But he didn't have the words, the lyrics for the second verse. And so he whistled the song out to the end. And the agreement was, well, when we get done with the tour, we'll come back and we'll we'll recut this this song. Well, four days later, he died in a plane crash. Well, no one knows that the whole whistling thing was just, you know, it, it just happened because he didn't have words, so he whistled it. That's just the brilliance and the genius of these people. And they're American, and I'm so proud of them. Little Richard, probably the uh, founding father, which is kind of funny to say that if you know about Little Richard, of rock and roll. Ike and Tina Turner, who were a couple, and then he beat her, and so she left him. The Miracles, the Jackson Five, no way, because Michael Jackson was so young in the early 70s. I mean, obviously, he did the Apollo Gladys Knight and the Pips, the Four Tops, the Temptations, the Isley Brothers, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Marvin Gaye was great too. Uh, Johnny Taylor, Bobby Rush, and Flip Wilson, who was a comedian who got his own show in the 70s. He cut his teeth on the Chitlin circuit, which is just, can you imagine that time frame? Say you're an African-American and you're going to go to whatever club it is in Memphis and actually see Little Richard or Marvin Gaye or someone, you know, B.B. King. Back when they were young, Sam Cooke, oh my gosh, that'd be awesome. Otis Redding would really be awesome. And they were getting big in the 60s when it was still segregated. So ridiculous. Now there's a little thing on the end, a historic marker designated by the Mississippi Blues Commission. We have that on the Mississippi Blues Trail. That's a thing because so many Mississippi bluesmen were born and raised and learned their trade in Mississippi. A lot in the Delta, but just as many throughout the state because little... What's his name? Howlin' Wolf was from outside of West Point, Mississippi, which is south of Tupelo. That's up in northeast Mississippi. They're, they're from all over, all over the state. Uh, Elmore James was from here in Canton, Mississippi. Um, I can't think of any out of Jackson, but there are some. Hmm. Let's see. The Blues Trail has a marker in front of the 100 Men Hall in Bay St. Louis. The 100 Men Hall is one of the rare standing, still active blues venues on the trail. Okay. The second historic marker designated by the Mississippi Blues Commission on the Mississippi Blues Trail was placed in front of the Southern Whispers Restaurant on Nelson Street in Greenville. That's in Mississippi. A stop on the Chitlin Circuit in the early days of blues. The markers commemorate the importance of these sites in the history of blues in Mississippi. Uh, in the 40s and 50s, the historic strip drew crowds to the flourishing club to hear Delta Blues, Big Band, Jump Blues, and Jazz. Obviously, you know there wasn't one on, in New Orleans. There's not a club in here in New Orleans. Is there even one from Louisiana? Maybe they didn't do that research. You know, there's a lot of Kentucky and Texas. You know, some Maryland. Some Mississippi. Did I say Virginia? Pennsylvania? Hmm. Florida? Well, 
Those are the notable ones. There were probably five times as many more. May, uh, that's ridiculous. Think, think of all the small towns around that had a black population that had some kind of juke joint on the outskirts of town or on the edge of the black district. And a lot of them are gone, 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 long gone. But you know, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, musicians that I named, their music will last long beyond their lives, because a lot of these people are gone. I think Richard Pryor's still alive, but he didn't entertain because of his diseases, whatever his symptom thing he had. I don't know if it's cerebral palsy or I'm just pulling rabbits out of a hat or uh, MS. I have no idea. But, oh. I do have green tea. That's so good. Oh, my dog's not in here. Last time I did an episode, the dogs were eating or playing or not fighting, but play fighting. Um, You know how you get to the bottom of a a Wikipedia page and it says, see also. There's usually interesting things under, under this, which is the Chitlin circuit. Who wrote the Chitlin circuit? Is there a name for, for maybe a person that did this? I don't see it, but you can read it in eight languages. All right. Um, so down here, we've got the Borscht Belt, which is the Jewish circuit up in New York. Denver D. Ferguson, um, probably the uh, man who organized the Chitlin Circuit. The Imperial Hotel, which is in Thomasville, Georgia. The Sawdust Trail, which may be the same thing. We'll look at that here in a second. And the Theater Owners Booking Association, which was the Fer- Ferguson's booking organization before they folded it and started their own. Oh, and then the Negro Motorist Green Book. Let's look at that. The Negro, it's an actual book. Here's the cover of a 1940 edition. It's a guidebook. The Negro Motorist Green Book or the Negro Traveler's Green Book or just the Green Book. I think I've seen that in a movie. Was an annual guidebook for African-American travelers. It was originally published by a black man in New York City. He was a postal worker named Victor Green. He started it in 1936 and did it until 1966. It was all during the era of the Jim Crow laws. And it was when open and often legally prescribed discrimination against African-Americans, especially other non-whites, was widespread. I guess Jews or Irish or non-white Asians. Although pervasive racial discrimination and poverty limited black car ownership, the emerging American, African-American middle class could buy automobiles. And once they did, they found they faced the dangers and inconveniences of being on the road refusal of food and fuel and lodging and could be just arbitrarily arrested. So in response to this, Victor Green wrote a guidebook to services and places relatively friendly to African-Americans. And it expanded from just New York to all across North America, as well as he also founded a travel agency to help people do their travel. Many black Americans took to driving in part to avoid segregation on public transportation. Yeah. Um, As one of the writers, George Shiler, I guess he was a Jewish person, maybe not, put in the 1930s, all Negroes who can do so purchase an automobile as soon as possible in order to be free of discomfort, discrimination, segregation, and insult. In public society, wow. Black Americans employed as athletes, entertainers, and salesmen also traveled frequently for work using automobiles of their own. Now, these hardships 
from white-owned businesses that res- that refuse to serve them or repair their vehicles or feed them and threaten physical violence and enforced forcible expulsion from white-only towns known as sundown towns, as in you better be out of town by sundown. Well, Green founded and published this Green Book to avoid all these problems. He compiled sources to, quote, give the Negro traveler information that will keep him from running into difficulties, embarrassments, and to make his trip more enjoyable, close quotes, and to save their lives. The maker of a film in 2019 wrote about, uh, talked about this book. Everyone I was interviewing talked about the community that the black, (laughs) the green book created a kind of parallel universe that was created by the book and this kind of secret map that the green book outlined for the black community. That is so interesting. So it started in New York in 36. He expanded it to cover North America, including most of the United States, parts of Canada, Mexico, the Caribbean, and Bermuda. How are you going to drive to the Caribbean and Bermuda? The Green Book became the Bible of black travel during Jim Crow, the Jim Crow laws that basically segregated blacks from white communities, etc., and businesses. Well, shortly after the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 64, which outlawed discrimination that made the Green Book necessary, it fell into obscurity. Now, the treatment may not have, but I guess he, Mr. Green just stopped doing the book. There has been a revived interest in the early 21st century in connection with studies of black travel during the Jim Crow era. Hmm. So four issues... The 1940, 1947, 1954, and 1963 issues have been republished and the early history and evolution of music, this is like, and and our culture as it like, gosh, as the white brain evolved from its disdain for black people or Jewish people. I mean, they, they, I mean, people in the 60s, people in the 50s that acted like that, they learned it from their parents. They fully learned it from their parents and aunts and uncles or whoever. Same for them. It was just passed down to be like that. I was not taught like that. I'm so glad. I'm so freaking glad. Um, thousands of... Wait, 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 wait. The African-American travel experiences... Before the legislature of the civil rights movement, auto journeys for blacks were fraught with difficulty and potential danger. This is probably going to be repetitive. They were subjected to racial profiling by police, quote, driving while black, unquote, and sometimes seen as, quote, uppity or, quote, too prosperous just for driving a vehicle around, which many whites regarded as a White privilege. They risked harassment or worse on and off the highway. A bitter commentary published in the 47 issue of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People on an article called The Crisis highlighted the uphill struggle blacks faced in recreational travel. This is their quote. Would a Negro like to pursue a little happiness at a theater, a beach, pool, hotel, restaurant, on a train, plane, ship, or a golf course, summer or winter resort? Question mark. Would he like 
to stop overnight at a tourist camp while he motors about his native land, seeing America for the first time? Well, just let him try. Well, now who says that if this is from the NAACP? NAACP, duh. For some reason I thought it ended in double C's. Um, thousands of communities in the U.S. had Jim Crow laws enacted after 1890. You had your sundown towns where it was dangerous for an African American to be out after dark. Um, restrictions date back to colonial times. After the end of slavery, okay now, but a minority of African Americans gained a measure of prosperity after the end of slavery and could plan leisure travel for the first time. Well-to-do blacks arranged large group excursions for as many as 2,000 people at a time. For instance, traveling by rail from New Orleans to resorts along the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. I guess if you're there in numbers, they can't really do much to you, can you? Pre-Jim Crow era. Mingling with whites in hotels, transportation, and leisure facilities was difficult. But the Civil Rights Act of 1875 made it illegal to discriminate against African Americans in public accommodations and public transportation. That did not stop people, especially in the South, but... The North and the East, the Midwest too. Let's not just say it's all the South. Um, let's skip on some of this stuff. This is just court things. 1896, 1917, black writer W.E.B. Du Bois, Webb Du Bois, I didn't know he was black observed that the impact of ever-recurring race discrimination had made it so difficult to travel to any number of destinations from popular resorts to major cities that it was now, quote, a puzzling query as to what to do with vacations, unquote. It was a problem that came to affect an increasing number of black people in the first decades of the 20th century. Tens of thousands of Southern African Americans migrated from farms in the South to factories and domestic service in the North no longer confined to living at a subsistence level in the middle of nowhere. Many gained disposable income and were looking for ways to engage in leisure and travel. And the black clubs popped up. And then they were booked into the chitlin circuit. That's just... That helped normalize race relations in this country. Think about it. I mean, black people took risks, but they were probably so sick of it that they were going to take a risk and just take whatever happens, just deal with it. They were going to take a risk. And uh, that bravery of that entire, you know, American, African-American community just to get out and be, change this nation. Um, some some people may say it changed it for worse. The only way I could see that is in medium-sized cities where a lot of white people moved out of the cities and the black people moved in. But you have to couple it with uh, Lyndon B. Johnson's uh, civil rights bill that, that gave small amounts of money to black people. And it was to help them get a leg up and get a start. But it became a lifestyle to so many. And so then these towns who are living off Five hundred, six hundred dollars a month. It's probably more right now. I mean, they're just getting by, but that's it's a lifestyle because they don't have to do anything for it, and so they don't try to gain. I mean, there's plenty that do, but go to a downtown, go to, go to downtown Jackson, go to downtown Memphis, go to uh, Cleveland. 
Detroit. I mean, this this whole pay because you exist from the government has wrought mediocrity to a culture. And it's it's sad. Of course, if you take it away, you're going to have a huge window of uh, theft and crime, although there already is. So what do you do, right? I live out in the country. So, I, you know, I am not concerned. I just want everybody to uh, find peace and be happy and, you know, not need to take from others and hurt others. Okay, so I'm sitting here on the Negro Motorist Green Book, and then I'll cut this out. Um, so Webb Du Bois, he was a very well-known writer, um, also wrote, I guess still speaking about Jim Crow cars, the development of affordable mass-produced automobiles liberated black Americans from having to rely on the Jim Crow cars, unquote. Smoky, battered, uncomfortable railroad carriages, which were the separate but decidedly unequal alternative to white-only cars. That's riding on trains. Buses, the blacks were in the back. A black magazine writer commented in 1933 in an automobile, it's mighty good to be the skipper for a change and pilot our craft whither and where we will. We feel like Vikings. What if our craft is blunt of nose and limited of power and our sea is macadamized? It's good for the spirit to just give the old railroad Jim Crow the laugh. Some freedom. Some G-damn freedom, man. I've got to get a copy of one of those books. Just to read about it. I want to read about just the Mississippi part of it. Um, here's a whole bunch of paragraphs about discrimination on the road that we're just going to pass over. The Rolls of the Green Book. It's repetitive here. But it included, for black patrons, hotels, camps, roadhouses, restaurants, and clubs for the African-American. Now, Jewish travelers who had also long experienced discrimination. Well, how can you tell someone's Jewish? I've never understood that. I mean, is it a certain nose? No one's looking down their pants. I don't get it. They created guide, They created guides of their own on places to go. African-Americans followed suit with publications such as the Hackley and Harrison's Hotel, an apartment guide for colored travelers, published in 1930, which is before Mr. Green's book. Um, of course, here's a picture of, of cabins. It says cabins for colored. Uh, this is in South Carolina. It does not look like the nicest place, but I guess if you're out traveling. But the Negro Motorist Green Book was the most well-known travel book. That's Victor Green's book. Oh, Victor Green was a World War I veteran. And lived in New York City as a mail carrier and a travel agent. He said his aim was, quote, to give the Negro traveler information that will keep him from running into difficulties, embarrassments, and to make his trip more enjoyable. I said that a minute ago. Sorry. Um, according to a writer in 1956, the 56th edition, quote, the idea of crystallized will not only... Mr. Green, but several friends and acquaintances complained of the difficulties encountered, oftentimes painful embarrassments suffered from ruining a vacation or business trip because of white racists. I said it. The Green Book's motto was displayed on the front cover and it urged black travelers to carry your Green Book with you. You may need it. A 1949 edition quoted Mark Twain, travel is fatal to prejudice. Ooh. Inverting Twain's original meaning, as Cotton Seller puts it, quote, here it was the visited rather than the visitors. 
who would find themselves enriched by the encounter. Oh, the visited, you know, that's get used to their culture, get more used to their culture. They're nice. They're not raping me or stealing anything. Uh, I guess it's okay. Think how the million people that thought that. God dang, man. This country has come so far, people. So far. So, so far. And people still now are misinformed that it is not what it is. That it is worse. That it is racist. Politicians and media shove this bullshit down our throats. That it's bad and people are bad and they hate each other and it's, 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 uh, it's not true. You get out on your own and just don't be afraid to talk to people and you'll find that people are good. And it doesn't matter what they look like. What if we were all blind? What if we were all blind? Would everyone be beautiful unless they, Unless you didn't like what they said or the way they said it. Otherwise, you know, I guess we wouldn't know colors unless you got blinded. And then you might. But you would know if as you met people after being blinded, is this person Jewish? Let me reach down his pants and see. No. Oh, God. Man, oh, man. The things... People need to learn. God dang, y'all need to learn. The black travel movement is a thing. God, I could go on for two hours, but it's getting late. It's 2.30. The black, oh, this, okay, I'm going to end it after this. The black travel movement is a socio-entrepreneurial phenomenon. God, say that again. That pursues social change by developing travel-related businesses that encourage black people to travel. Well, they do now, but there was a time when they didn't. The movement emerged in the 2010s. Are you kidding me? It was before the 1980s. There were black resorts. But now you you pay the money, they'll have you at their resorts. Oh my gosh. Okay, I want to read... This modern movement that people are realizing blacks can travel in 2010 and after. What in the world? I'll read this whole paragraph. In 2011, the first black travel movement company, Nomadness, <laughs> Nomadness, I love it, was created by Avita Robinson with the goal of connecting black people with travel opportunities that had not previously been marketed to black travelers. Are you kidding me? Are you trying to make them feel stupid? As of 2022, Dillette and Benjamin counted 20 such companies, referring them as social entrepreneurships because the typical organizational goal, in addition to profit, wink, wink, is affecting social change within the travel sphere. Where do y'all live where you still think it's like this? It's in big cities. In the late 2010s, Jessica Nobongo and Wani Spots, they definitely changed their names, both claimed to be the first black women to visit every country in the world. The dispute caused rumblings within the movement. Why? According to Essence Magazine, with some in the movement attempting to pit the two women against each other. Now, why would, why would they do that? It's brave for two grown men to go to every country in the world because some cultures are dangerous. Two black women are probably more safe in any country in Africa than white people. I don't know. I haven't been there. I guess it depends on where, you know, go to the Congo or the Sudan or uh, Somalia. Maybe not. Maybe everybody's in danger. But, oh my gosh. Okay, I'm not I'm not reading any more of this because uh, I'm finding people trying to dumb down their own, saying, hey, you're not free. You can be free. You've been free. Stop it. You're free. People aren't going to stop you from traveling. You can go to Texas and have barbecue. No one is going to mess with you. If you get an offhand remark, 
just give them a stare, they'll probably feel like shit and leave. It's not 1951. Whew. I guess I could drop into what I've been doing, but it's headed on towards 3 a.m. I've got a football game to watch at 11 a.m. at a friend's house. So, I'm not going to get into any of the things I've been doing this time. This has been a social commentary, and hopefully a good one. I don't like how it ended, but, you know, sometimes people don't like how things end. That's just how it goes. I forget when this hits 60 minutes, which I usually don't go that long, uh, it cuts off on its own. No uh, beep, warning, buzz, hey you. It just does it. It's kind of like the federal government. It just does it. <laughs> so, gosh, I'm not even in my office anymore. I'm laying in bed talking to my phone. Uh, kindness, I want y'all to just practice kindness. Get in touch with your family. If you hadn't seen or talked to any of your close family, do it. And, of course, we've got our friends, all our friends, for so many years. If you haven't talked to some in a while, call them up, or at least text or send an email, something. Touch base, Facebook. You know, someone that used to be uh, used to be close to, you know, and maybe you're not now, you should do it. And then uh, in your moments of being in public around strangers if you get a chance to talk you know smile friendly hey don't force it just I mean if it's not in your nature I guess it's not in your nature it's in my nature you know I'll never never meet an enemy I always meet a friend whatever it's called um you know when they feel that kindness you know it's encouraging it's like they're, they're kind people in this world and, and that means I I could be kind too and that ripple of kindness will go out and that's something I've talked about every episode at the end just about so do it to it peace <laughs>